For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show, and it's your day, folks. It's Friday. You made it. Congratulations. April the 15th, year of our Lord, 2022. So glad you're with us, ending up a very strong week of turning down the noise of the news cycle. Man, we've covered a lot of stuff, a lot of caterwauling out there this week, and our day keeps the caterwauling away right here on Heard Tell. Thank you for joining us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. You give us the most precious thing you have, your time. We greatly appreciate it. We got some interesting stuff to cover today. Our favorite guy, I say our favorite, not because he's just our favorite. He's been on this program more than anybody else. By popular demand, Dr. Michael Siegel, he's back. Going to talk some science, going to talk some sci-fi, going to talk some space stuff, going to talk about Ukraine. Uh, he has familiar ties to Ukraine, uh, get his personal take on what's going on there. And we're going to play a fun little game. Uh, he, One of his many flaws of his personal character is he does not care for the movie Armageddon, the great cinematic masterpiece. I'm going to ask him directly which movies are better at science, Armageddon, and play a little lightning round game with him of various kinds. We're going to have some fun with it. Uh, our friend, astronomer, astrophysicist, spacecraft commander, master of the Blackstone Griddle, Michael Siegel will be on a little bit later in the program. Have some fun to end the week. We're also going to end the program with a really cool story. A 100-year-old, heavily decorated World War II fighter pilot wants to use his centennial birthday to spread some charity. Uh, it's a wonderful story of a great American and a living American legend. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But as always, we have to talk about a little bit of culture and politics. Uh, Elon Musk all over the news about Twitter. Uh, I got some flack for what I said on social media. I will explain that in a little bit more detail a bit later on in the program. Uh, Marie Le Pen out in France, the French elections. She is upset that people are tying her to Vladimir Putin. I have a very simple answer for her and solution. If she doesn't like that, that would make that stop. She ain't going to do it, but we're going to suggest it anyway. That's coming up in a little bit. Let's start right here with domestic politics. Uh, President Joe Biden, there has been two major polls released in the last few days. Uh, the Q poll, Quinnipiac poll, came out and a Gallup poll came out. Uh, neither one of them were good. In fact, both of them were very, very poor in combination with the CPI inflation number. Uh, things ain't looking good for an election year in the midterms. Um, let's go to the Washington Post. They broke it down this way. The first poll was Quinnipiac University released on Wednesday. It measured Biden's approval with those age 65 and older at about even as many viewed his job performance, positive and negative. Those under 30, though, or more than twice as likely to view his performance with disapproval. That's Quinnipiac, the pollster that Biden's team once went out of its way to disparage as an outlier. But then on Thursday morning, a new polling, reading from the Washington Post here, from Gallup, showed it the exact similar pattern. 
It was among the youngest Americans, not the oldest, where Biden was struggling the most. What's more is with those Americans that his approval had fallen the most over the course of his presidency. Gallup broke out Biden's approval into three mini-month chunks. The first covered the first half of 2021, the second period lasting when the polling was found to his approval was sinking. The most recent extended from September through March. Remember what happened in September? That's coming off the tail end of the Afghanistan debacle. The most recent extended from September through March among those older than baby boomers that's born 1945 or earlier. So all those folks would be uh, just right around 80 years of age and older. Uh, Biden's approval had been flat across those three periods among boomers. That's 46 to 64. So you're talking people 60 to 80, roughly. He lost about seven points. As the groups get younger, the decline gets steep. By the time you get to Gen Z, that's 97 or later. His approval, 97 later, those would be, you know, 25-year-olds or so. His approval is down 21 points. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Young people are expected to be the great future hope of the Democratic Party with their liberal views influencing their vote for decades to come. This is the Washington Post saying this, not me. Yet here we are, disillusionment at least, if not outright distaste, raising the obvious question, why? <laughs> Great piece of writing here in the next line. There is not an obvious question why. Uh, good job, Philip Bump. Excellent way to write that one. Uh, there is not an obvious answer, however quickly someone might be offended. For example, it may be tempted to point out the administration's decision not to immediately retire student loan debt. That's overblown. That's that's. We'll talk about that some other time. It's a deeper issue. But only a third of those under 30 have such debt, meaning that for two-thirds of the group, it's probably less of a personal concern. Gallup data does not allow us to drill down on calls. Remember what we talked about our friend Brooke Medina. Good polls will always give you the cross tabs. You can get down in there and find out why this stuff goes on. But reading from Philip Bump here, it does allow to consider a few things. And then they break it down by race. Uh, Hispanics down 21 points, black voters, the black voters in the Democratic Party made Joe Biden president. Remember South Carolina, Jim Clyburn, they ran not walk to the polls for this man to become the nominee and eventually the president. That is in crucial constituency for the president. Black voters down negative 20 percent, white voters down 10 percent by party. Democrats are down 10 percent. Independents negative 19 points. What does all this mean? You can go through the rest of the numbers at Washington Post. I encourage you to read it yourself. They got some handy dandy pretty graphs as well. Uh, unless something really drastic happens, the midterms are going to be a bloodbath for the Democratic Party. Usually, if you lose 10 to 20 seats in a midterm, that's pretty bad. If you lose 30, you've got yourself a tsunami going. There's a very good chance they could lose 30 seats. They might even lose the Senate. Now, there's a lot to happen between now and then, and you still got to run individual candidates. And God knows the Republicans have some real winners running, especially in places like Ohio, where you may actually have a nominee that's just stark raving crazy, and it doesn't matter the partisan spread. They may do something really nuts and blow an election. So there's a lot to happen here. But cyclically, traditionally, uh, cyclically, uh, the midterm should go well for the Republicans. So let's project out for just a little bit, though. The president's approval numbers are horrible. But I want to caution you all on something. Nothing stays the same in politics for very long. If the Republican Party gets power and they take Congress, especially the House of Representatives, and you have a split Congress and or an even Senate, or even if they take the Senate, his approval numbers are going to go back up next year. Well, how do I know that? He's still Joe Biden. I know he's Joe Biden. He's got a lot of flaws. We deal tell his flaws. We're very critical of the president here. But the dynamic will change. It won't be the Democrats didn't get anything done which is why those younger voters are so upset right now. They've done nothing. 
They've gotten no major policy. I know they did the COVID stuff, but anybody would have done that. I know they did infrastructure, but every Congress is always going to vote for roads and bridges. They don't have a lot of signature stuff to hang their hat on as far as accomplishments go. And policy still does matter even in the social media age. But if the Republicans get Congress, his approval is going to go up. Why? Because he's not to blame anymore. And now he gets to work off a Republican Congress. And Kevin McCarthy or whoever's in charge of the Republican uh, caucus in the House of Representatives is going to have an unruly bunch of folks who's going to feel really, really empowered to try to get theirs. And there's some real questionable folks on the Republican side of the ledger that might really cause problems for the Republican Party, not to mention the country. So just hang in there. Don't lose your bearing. Yes, this is probably going to be a massive red wave election, but it may not last super long. Remember, you still got to run somebody in 2024. The elephant in the room floating out there, Donald J. Trump. What's he going to do? What's his role in 2022 going to be? Is Biden still going to run? Some people don't think he's going to run. I think if there's breath in his body, he's going to run. I think you're wasting your time talking about that. But if President Biden runs in 2024 and he gets to run against a Republican Congress, his approval is going to go up because a lot of this isn't going to be his fault anymore. And he'll have some silliness to run against. Moral of the story, things change quick in Washington. Republicans are riding high right now. They're going to have a very good November. But then once they're in power, they're going to have to do something productive with it. Call me skeptical. I've seen this movie before. More Hurtel right after this. Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, I don't really want to talk about this, but I have to because fair is fair, and I took a whole lot of flack on social media for it, so let me break this down for you a little bit. Uh, Elon Musk, I have we have discussed him on this program before. We've had guests on in whole segments talking about Elon Musk. He's a complicated guy. When you're a mad genius, the problem is the genius part comes with the mad part, and the mad part comes with the genius part. I don't mean mad as in, you know, insane. I mean, mad as in he's just a special kind of guy. People that function on that level, they're just different. Nothing wrong with that. I've broke it down on this program before, and I've been consistent. I love the SpaceX stuff. Tesla is a subsidized Ponzi scheme. We'll talk about that some other time. Go ahead and get mad. It just is. If you're not getting all that subsidized money from other car companies, it's not a car company. It's a luxury brand. But we'll get into that some other time. I'm not a huge fan of the Tesla stuff. I love the SpaceX stuff. He's doing great work for humanity in that rank. And then how he personally conducts himself. I've got all kinds of questions. Remember when he called the cave rescuer in Thailand a pedo? And he called him that just because they shot down his idea of trying to invent a submarine to get the kids out of the cave. He got mad online and besmirched that man for no good reason. Another, he doesn't have any impulse control. So now everybody's freaking out because... He was going to go on the board for Twitter. He's not going to go on the board. He owns 9%. Now he has done a filing to buy Twitter outright. Everybody just calm down. Okay. I understand the numbers are big. He's put in a $40 billion plus dollar offer. These, these deals, let's be adults here. He doesn't have $40 million laying around. I know some people estimate his worth at $250 billion. That's not the issue. You have to put these deals together. They have to be financed. Somebody, a third party on top of the financing has to verify the financing. These things are very, very complicated. Just because he says he's offering that, there's a hundred steps before that would actually come true. And I want to bring you back to something that happened before. And some for some reason, everybody seems to have forgotten it. In 2018, he said on Twitter 
that he had secured private funding to take Tesla private, which he says it was true. The SEC, the Security Exchange Commission's disagreed, as did most of the company do. And he got in a whole lot of trouble for it. He got in so much trouble that him and Tesla both had to pay $20 million apiece in the settlement to the SEC. And he had to step down as the chairman of Tesla. This was just in 2018. This wasn't that long ago. So before everybody gets all hot and bothered about Elon Musk buying Twitter and getting into the free speech debate and all that, which I've got into a little bit online with some folks, I see zero evidence that he would be any better for free speech than the current management of Twitter. But he has fans and fans don't want to listen to such things. He has a habit of talking big and not backing it up. He cannot pull $40 billion out of thin air. These kind of deals have to go through. It would have to go through regulatory approval. He would have to do a lot of work to do it. So I would calm down. I would let this breathe. He's not going to buy Twitter in the next 10 minutes. I don't really want him to buy it at all, but that's another matter neither here nor there. Just let this one breathe. It may turn out like the taking Tesla private thing where he's just shooting his mouth off online. I know he did a filing. Anybody can file anything. Calm down. Keep your bearing. Let this one breathe. Elon Musk, the person, the idea, the myth, the living legend, has gotten a lot bigger than Elon Musk, the man who actually interacts with people online and does things to get attention, to drive his businesses. He's very smart. He uses social media to manipulate things like stock prices. Let this thing breathe. See what actually happens on it. You don't need to get on your ramparts over Elon Musk. Just hang in there. Let's see if there's actually any there there to this particular story. More Hertel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Ah, welcome back to Herdtel. Here he is, the most appearances ever in the history of the Hertel program. He is here to extend his lead. He is one of the smartest people on the planet. That's not me saying that. That's all the letters after his name saying that. And once he starts talking, you'll understand what we're talking about. Good friend of ours, uh, an astronomer, a teacher we're going to actually talk a little bit about today, uh, spacecraft pilot, uh, Blackstone Griddle, 
uh, connoisseur. Did I leave anything major out there, Michael Siegel, or did that pretty much cover most of it? Um, purveyor of dad jokes. Purveyor of dad jokes. I actually got to bust out the uh, Smoky Bear and the Benedictines in the flower shop and not making sure you prevent florist friars uh, last night to massive groans from the middle school kids. So uh, we can do dad jokes all day long, my friend. Good seeing you. It's been a minute. We have been dealing with the wider world just uh, more broadly. Uh, we've both been tweeting about it. We've been writing about it at Ordinary Times. The stuff going on in the Ukraine and with Russia, Ukraine, obviously they've they've kind of blunted the initial assault. But just as your observer of humanities, as you gaze at the stars, you also deal with us down here in the, in the dirt and the muck. What's your overall impression of where we're at some 45 days into this illegal war of aggression that Putin has put on the Ukrainian people? Um, well, I think it's very telling that he's redeployed to try to achieve something in the East. You know, when this war started, uh, you know, you remember the U.S. projections were that Kiev would fall within days. They wanted to evacuate Zelensky. And then the, this week, Boris Johnson went and visited Zelensky in Kiev. And uh, they've redeployed to the east. So I think I, I don't see any way you can look at this and not conclude that it has not gone anywhere near what Putin was hoping for. I don't think he anticipated this kind of resistance. I don't think he anticipated that Zelensky would defy him as much as he has and that the Ukrainian people would rally behind him. And uh, I don't think he anticipated that the West and NATO would unite against him as thoroughly as they have. I'm going to ask you because um, I'm assuming this probably lands differently for you, and you've talked about this a little bit, but um, the anti-Nazi stuff, the not-so-veiled Jewish stuff, Ukraine has the largest uh, Jewish population in Europe. Um, as somebody of that faith and that cultural background, how has that part of it been landing? Because I, I got to imagine it's just it's like the veiled layer of awfulness that we're not even talking about, but everybody knows it's there. When, when you hear Putin say that, and we know there, there's a lot of uh, racial groups, people get into the Nazi stuff. How does that been landing with you and, and your family and your faith group when you guys talk about this kind of stuff? Because underneath all the awfulness of the war crimes and all that, there's just a lot of base level bigotry and hatred going on here on top of all the rest of it and the political calculations, isn't there? Um, certainly, um, you have a long history here. I mean, my grandmother was Ukrainian Jew, uh, from the Odessa region where there's been fighting. And, um, you can certainly look at on a national level. You know, I just read, um, Ann Applebaum's outstanding book, Red Famine about the Holodomor and the deliberate mass starvation of Ukrainians in the attempt to wipe out Ukrainian culture. Uh, there's a YouTube channel I find where I follow where they play this stringed instrument that the Ukrainian that is a traditional Ukrainian instrument. At one point, Stalin had all the people who played that instrument gathered together and executed because he wanted to wipe out that part of their culture. And, you know, sort of putting this in the guise of anti-Nazism, I do realize, you know, people talk a lot about the Azov Battalion and some of the you know Nazi symbol symbology and so forth there. That's a very small part of Ukraine's culture. I mean, it's certainly there and certainly an element that Zelensky and his fellows need to deal with. But this is not a country of Nazis. And to take that banner when you're fighting a war of aggression, I think uh, really does rub a lot of people the wrong way. 
And normally when we have you on, I'm talking to our friend Michael Siegel, that's Dr. Michael Siegel to you when we talk science stuff, but we're talking culture for the moment. Um, you are a man of science. We usually have you on to kind of break down data sets or a study or something like that. Uh, as a scientist, though, when you have something like a shooting war, how do you process that in the academic community? Because it really does go to show that, you know, we, we have all this scientific knowledge, but, and this is more of a philosophical question, but science has a lot of limits when it starts hitting human nature, especially the dark sides of human nature. Um, how do you process that? Like when you're teaching a class or when you're talking to your students or people you're mentoring and be like, look, look, we push science for the betterment of humanity. But at the same time, science has a lot of limits on what it can do to actually affect the behavior of humanity at the same time. Um, certainly, that's that's a part of it. And as far as the impact on the scientific community goes, we do have I, I don't personally have any collaborators in, in Ukraine, but I do know people who do and who are saying, you know, they've lost contact with them or are hearing messages from them about how desperate the situation is there. And I do have uh, collaborators in Eastern Europe who are worried about this whole thing and what it might mean for other countries in the region and so forth. As far as the morality goes, you know, the first class I, I the first lesson I give in almost any class I teach is about the scientific method and why science is so awesome and why it has solved problems and put disease on the run and put men on the moon and so forth. But I say that there are limitations to science. You know, if there's no data, there's no science. And there are aspects of the human condition that sort of defy scientific explanation on our more of moral, ethical, spiritual questions than anything else. Uh, the example is, you know, there was a couple of years ago, Neil deGrasse Tyson put out a, uh, this thing about how he wanted a society that was defined by scientific principles and, you know, forwarded science. And my response was, you know, as much of a promoter as a science I am, there are questions in our society that science does not have an answer to. These are moral questions. You know, the case against slavery, for example, is a moral question, not a scientific one. The case for civil rights and free speech, these are more moral questions than they are scientific ones. And the case against an aggressive war, and you can have scientific aspects of it. You can talk about the destruction of human life and the loss of human potential and the destruction of econ economies. But ultimately, these are moral questions that we decide that we oppose war, we oppose aggression, we oppose murder because they are wrong, not because of the science behind them. Put your, uh, put your teaching hat on for just a second. Uh, you've been doing uh, a lot of yeoman's work at Ordinary Times with the COVID stuff for the last two years, usually because, you know, it's a data set heavy thing. You know, we're talking about percentages, we're talking about viral loads, we're talking about a lot of nomenclature and terminology that people don't understand. There's a lot of stats and figures. Put the human face on it, though, because you were tweeting about this, and, and we've talked about it a couple times over the years now. <laughs> we've been dealing with COVID for years. How weird is it to say that out loud? You're a teacher at heart. You love to teach. You still, even though you're you know advanced in your career, you like to teach that introductory level in your field because you love that. Talk about those students you're seeing because you're getting, you know, freshmen and sophomore that did that virtual learning stuff in their last years of high school, those formative years. What are you seeing from those students? I imagine it's a spectrum where, you know, some people adapt really well, some people don't. But as an educator and you're at that higher level now, what are you seeing from the actual students that have come out of this and are trying to push ahead with their higher education now? Well, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on this. I think we're still learning a lot. We're probably going to have studies coming out for years now on the impact of this on student education. 
and I don't teach full time. I I'm a research professor, so I teach maybe one class a year uh, when we need someone in the schedule. But contrasting where we are now to where we were a couple of years ago, it seems like the like a lot of students are doing well. They've sort of picked it up without a problem. But there does seem, and not just based on on my experience, but I'm talking to other professors about this, there seems to be a sort of tale of students who are struggling to get back to where they were a couple of years ago. And uh, this is borne out by some of the initial studies we've seen, which have shown that there is there has been regression in student performance, not just in what they know, but in their abilities to learn and to keep up with class. And especially in college, you know, if you get behind, you, you can get really behind and struggle. And there, there are connections of that between, you know, socioeconomics and so forth that uh, students who are from well to, more well-to-do families did better through the pandemic and so forth. I think it's going to take a long time before we know the impact of this. Um, it's not in any way positive. It's it's definitely been a negative. How big a negative it is, whether we can recover from this within a few years, that remains to be seen. I think it's going to take a lot of work and patience from a lot of people who are already, especially in the case when you're talking about, I mean, I'm an occasional college teacher. When you're talking about high school teachers and elementary school teachers, they've already been pushed by the pandemic pretty hard, uh, are, are sort of at their edge. And so now having to recover from that uh, is, is a challenge. And I have two children, one's 14, one's eight. And I would say that based on what I'm seeing with them, they've gotten back to the to being in good habits and, and being back to the skills they had, but it did take a while. But the difference between I'm seeing in them who had, we were in a pretty good situation with being able to support remote education for them. In-person education is just a massive improvement over remote education for children of that age. And I understand why we closed the schools down. It was at the time, it seemed like the decision we had to make because everyone envisioned, I mean, you have children, I have children, we know that they bring home everything. And so there was a thought that this was going to just make the pandemic even worse than it was. It turned out we could control it through masking and social distancing, and especially through improvements in ventilation in our schools. And so uh, in retrospect, it was a mistake, but uh it will be a while before we really know the impact of this short, medium, and even and long-term. Yeah. Talking to our friend, Michael Siegel. Um, scientifically though, talk about that medium, intermediate, and long-term because we're already starting to get some really serious studies. I, I just saw another one out on the West coast. I, I put it out on my social media where they're looking for people. They're doing these studies on long COVID now. Uh, we've covered it on this program that uh, people with underlying conditions like autoimmune diseases, they're, they're, there's going to be some long-term ramifications from this stuff. Just as a scientist, I know short-term, everybody wants to know, is there going to be another wave? Are we ever going to go back? Short-term, intermediate-term, long-term, what's kind of the markers we should be looking at? Not just, you know, masks coming back or anything like that, but what should we be looking at to make sure that we've kind of got the worst of this behind us now? I think the main thing is going for us is going to be on the technological side, getting improvements in the vaccines, uh, getting uh, more people to get vaccinated. I think that the vaccines that we have developed in the United States have proven to be by far the most effective weapon we have. I mean, masks are good. Social isolation, you know, is good. Those, but social isolation, of course, has a huge downside. But vaccination is really why we are where we are right now and why we're not experiencing 
what's going on in China right now. I mean, we're just having a little bit of an uptick in the last few days from the latest version of Omicron. And I, I know Philadelphia in my state has just reinstituted indoor mask mandates. So we'll see where we are with that. But it's very, it's very hard to predict what a virus is going to do. And I think that the course of continuing to develop antivirals, continuing to test, continuing to find new ways of predicting when outbreaks are going to happen, and especially improving the vaccines to the point where they are much more effective, even than they are now, which is pretty miraculous where we are two years into this, uh, I think is going to be the big challenge for the years ahead. Yeah, we're talking to Dr. Michael Siegel. He's our good friend from Ordinary-Times.com, does a lot of our science writing, he's been doing our COVID writing, uh, also talking a little education. We come back, I'm going to actually give him some science questions, get him off this hardcore philosophical stuff, get him back in his comfort zone here a little bit, uh, talk some science, always enjoy our discussions. Uh, Michael Siegel, when Hertel returns. One of these days, I'll actually spell your name correctly without switching the I and the E. Promise. <laughs> I'm going to keep working on it. I'll learn. Uh, welcome back to Herd Delta. to our friend, Michael Siegel. Okay, doctor, put your science hat on. There's been some scientific headlines we want to run by you. The Chernobyl thing, when, when it initially happened, I was kind of like, this is a distraction. Um, we know that the plan is closed. Even with them shelling it, they, there would have to be some extraordinary circumstances. They would have to sabotage it on purpose to really cause an incident. So I kind of turned the noise down on that. What we're finding out now, though, some of the reports, and again, a lot of this is reports, so take it with some grains of salt. If the Russians really did have their troops digging trenches in the exclusion zone, if they really did have them bivouacked out in the what they call the Red Forest there for obvious reasons, if you watch the thing, if any of that is even fractionally true, Morally, obviously, it's just ridiculous. But on a scientific level, this is idiocy that I'm not sure that we thought even the Russians would do, even knowing the Soviet Union had idiocy that caused Chernobyl in the first place. This is mind boggling on a scientific level. You just got to be shaking your head at it, don't you? Yeah. And the thing you you always treat radiation with respect, even when you're dealing with small amounts of it, because it's invisible and you can accidentally contaminate yourself or, you know, there are famous incidents throughout uh, history. Um, one of the earliest was with the, what was called the Demon Corps, a uh, corps that accidentally went critical and uh, killed people uh, because of the sudden intense increase in radiation. So it's, it's mind-boggling to me that you would send people into the, one of the biggest radiation disaster zones, the biggest radiation disaster zone in the world, and not prepare them for being there. I mean, people visit the Chernobyl exclusion zone. People go there for tourism, as a matter of fact, and they get instructions on what's safe to do, what's not safe to do, how to monitor yourself, what, where to go, where not to go. And to send your soldiers into that region and not give them those kind of basic instructions. And in fact, tell them to do incredibly dangerous things like disturb radioactive soil and dig into radioactive soil where that stuff sits there for, for many years is, uh, is just incredible to me. Yeah, scientifically explain folks what we're talking about because they tourism is big in Chernobyl. It's one of those things where they, you know, we all know the precautions and we know we know about the liquidators, those poor guys. <laughs> Talk about soldiers that got screwed over. It's one of those things where you can kind of walk around, 
uh, with some with some exceptions. They they can actually take you into the reactor hall. There's pictures in there. There's you can go on YouTube. They they'll take you right in the reactor hall. You can look at the reactor halls and all this. But all of that is undisturbed because it's stuff that's been dealt with. It's been treated. It's been it's constantly monitored. I would assume. But when you start going out into the forest and you start digging up, talk about scientifically why that's so different than just, you know, walking down the street, a parapet or wherever, where it's, you know, it's had 30, 40 years of kind of settling down a little bit. That's a whole different beast when you start disturbing and stirring it up. Talk about radiation because, you know, I don't know what you call it. It's like people might be thinking like dust or just dirt clouds or whatever. This is a different beast when you're talking about something that's radiated. Yeah. And with... Pripyat and the areas around there, they have a pretty good idea of where the danger zones are. They've cleaned out a lot of the contaminated areas. You know, they've made it so that people can work there and function there with low levels of danger. I mean, you're exposed to radiation all the time. It's the amount, it's the accumulated amount that is dangerous. So small amounts of radiation over long times or intense amounts of radiation over a short time are what's dangerous. So going into the exclusion zone with their guidance of where it is safe to go and so forth. That's not the safest thing in the world to do, but it's not going to kill you. Whereas, you know, you go into the red forest, these are areas that we, that have been deliberately avoided where they, you know, the soil is contaminated, has not been cleaned up and so forth. I mean, it's now one of the most amazing wildlife refuges either, because it turns out that a lot of creatures can adapt to radiation environments. But when you, you, know, you can imagine the ash and smoke and debris from the reactor sort of spreading over the area. That stuff is, some of that stuff is still dangerous. And if you stir it up, you can breathe it in, it can get in your clothes, it can get on your body, you know, and, uh, and, and that's, that's very dangerous to be doing. So you can function in the radiation zone if you are in areas that they control and that they monitor, but just going in there and doing random stuff. I remember a few years ago, there was some woman who said she was biking through the exclusion zone. It turned out not to be the case. And people were like, that's very dangerous because you're going in uncontrolled areas. Yeah. I'm talking to our friend, Michael Siegel. Okay. Speaking of somewhere that has a ton of radiation, uh, your favorite place to talk about space, some big developments. We've talked about the web telescope. It's up, it's running, it unfolded. Everything seems to be going really, really well. The the stargazing folks just lost their minds at the initial imaging. You know, it looks, you know, kind of like a flared photograph, I'd guess would be a good way to explain it to people that aren't looking at it. It's just kind of a big dot of light. Why was that dot of light such a big deal, though? And explain it to folks. You can go to ordinary-times.com. You've written about this. You've got the actual picture, or I guess it's been artist rendered a little bit so people understand what they're looking at. Why was that little dot of light such a big, big deal for the scientific community? Because JWST has 18 mirrors. One of the things we figured out many years ago was it's hard to build really huge mirrors. And there was a time when about five meters was the biggest single mirror you can you could build. But it turns out it's one easier and cheaper to build mirrors with hexagons. The um, Keck telescope, the first 10 meter class telescope was built out of these hexagons that you fit together and you use these little actuators to get it into the right shape so that you can focus the light. Um, that was one of the big challenges. This The James Webb Space Telescope has multiple mirrors. And when they first turned it on, you had 18 images because they were all focused in different places. And now they've aligned them so you get a single image of every star in the field. And, that, uh, and that's what we wanted for it to act as though it were one giant mirror. 
And so it's a bright star that's saturated because you want to focus on a bright star to get the best alignment. And it has these spikes out of it from that are diffraction from the support things. But if you actually look deep in the image, you can see lots of little faint galaxies, lots of very faint stars. Um, people were comparing these to images from previous infrared space telescopes where a galaxy was just a blur of light. And now you can see structure and spiral arms and so forth. And so you're getting the kind of resolution, the kind of detail when you look into the cosmos that we had hoped that this telescope would produce. So right now, based on the preliminary testing, it is within spec and uh, doing what we hoped it would do. It's probably gonna still be a couple months before we'll start getting any real science quality images out of it. They're still calibrating it and waiting for everything to, to finish cooling off and so forth. But um, so far, so good. It is performing as well as we could have hoped. Yeah, I was reading one uh, person from NASA writing about it, and they, they actually said that they have research data they didn't even know they were missing just from the test image because it was so <laughs> clear. They were, they were finding stuff that they didn't even know. They're like, we can do research just off the test run, and it's not yep. even calibrated yet. That's how excited they was. That's a, that's a pretty amazing piece of equipment then, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and you hope it is for the price the taxpayers paid for it, but it is a quantum leap in our ability to image the deep infrared universe. And, you know, the things, the mysteries we wanted it to explore were things like how stars form, how planetary systems form, the, how the first stars in the universe were created, what kind of stars there were, how the first galaxies were forming. And these test images indicate it's going to be able to meet those objectives and answer those questions. And to me, Anytime you put a spacecraft in a new space telescope up, I like to say, if you build it, they will come. When you put a new instrument up, people are going to think of new things to do with it that you didn't think of when you built it. You know, I, our SWIFT telescope was designed to look at gamma ray bursts. It's a small fraction of the science we do now because people can think of all kinds of things they can do with the capabilities we provide. And this is going to be like that. There's going to be science we're going to get out of this that we did not anticipate when it was designed and built, designed 25 years ago. And so that's going to be, to me, the most exciting part, what it's going to do that we don't know yet it's going to do. Michael Siegel, we always enjoy talking about this. Now, his little side project, though, he likes to review science fiction and put a little bit of a spin on it. Uh, so I'm, look, friends hold friends accountable. So I hate to do this to you publicly, but I have to. Um, with the sad news of the retirement of Bruce Willis from acting because of his health issues, and we wish him nothing but the best in that and his family, um, would you like to take this opportunity to admit how drastically wrong you have been about the uh, wonderful motion picture documentary Armageddon and how humanity can save itself through the magic and power of science in, in lieu of the fact that we're never going to get a sequel now that uh, Bruce Willis has retired? Um. <laughs> I'm actually probably going to do a video hopefully this summer when I have a little bit more time on Armageddon. I can certainly see why people like it. Um, but the liberties it takes with science are fairly extreme. So, uh, so we'll just have to reconcile ourselves, uh, meet in the middle with that, where I can admit that I see why it is as popular as it is. Is, it, is there truth to the urban legend that uh, NASA and other folks used to use that as an introductory test of physics where the students would have to prove all the problems that were wrong with things like gravity and things like that by watching the film? I can neither confirm nor deny that uh, that has been done at some point. 
Have but, you ever uh, done that at, at any point where you just got I, I so have, mad you have, busted out the legal pad and went, I'm going to get them? <laughs> I have not yet, but it, it certainly is an interesting uh, project you could unveil on Astro Majors uh, uh, to, to look at that. Okay. Uh, better. Let's, let's just do some quick hit, hits here real quick. Better scientific science fiction movie, Armageddon or The Last Starfighter? <laughs> um, I would say uh, probably Armageddon because Armageddon at least deals with a real problem, which is asteroids might possibly hitting the Earth. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Armageddon or Doctor Who? Mm, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say uh, Doctor Who because it occasionally does have a, a really good science fiction story. <laughs> fair enough. Okay, uh, here's one for you. Armageddon and original Star Trek. Um, I'm actually going to be doing a video on original Star Trek soon. I would say original Star Trek. Um, it, uh, I mean, it does deal with flights of fancy like warp drives and beamer, beaming and stuff like that. But it actually, the stars they mention are, are real. Some of the concepts they talk about are real. Um, there's certainly some things that you can criticize in it. And uh, I'll do, I'll, that's another summer project that I'm going to be doing. I just finished my uh, tweeting out my reviews of the first season of original Star Trek. And uh, just a preview for what's to come, I'm going to be doing a video where I break down some of the science of uh, the first season. Yeah, I remember uh, reading one of the original NASA guys from back in the 70s and 80s when Star Trek, and they asked him about it. And he goes, he goes, the orbiting bothers me. He goes, they act like that's the most routine ever. And that's the hardest thing we have to do. And that was <laughs> one of the points he took out of it. He's like, that's the hardest thing we do. And they make it like it's the most, uh, just put us in orbit <laughs> willy nilly. <laughs> Yeah, they also have this dev plot device where they have the engines run out and the orbit's going to decay. And I'm like, we have lots of satellites that have been in orbit for decades and don't have engines on them at all. So I don't, I don't think, unless your astro navigator is really bad, you shouldn't be in that unstable in orbit. <laughs> okay. All right. Armageddon or Deep Impact? I would have to say Deep Impact on that one, just in terms of the science. They get a lot more science right, but they get a lot of stuff wrong too. So uh, maybe I'll talk about that at some point. All right. And one that is semi-science fiction, but it's a movie that just drives me absolutely nuts. Armageddon or Day After Tomorrow? Uh, I've actually not seen Day After Tomorrow. I did talk to a climate scientist about that who did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why. If anything, sh should we just ban Roland Emmerich from making any movie that doesn't involve a natural disaster on Earth itself? Uh, that might be a good idea. I think uh, maybe we could actually get Congress to do that. <laughs> Oh, great. More. Yeah. Let's make it a first amendment issue while we're at it. Great job, scientist. <laughs> Dr. Michael Siegel, one of our favorite people. Uh, the streak continues. The lead has been extended. The most seen guest on the Hertel program. Long may your reign last, sir. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me once again. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate you, my friend. Take care. Going back to Hertel, headline out of the BBC, French election, Le Pen, that's Marie Le Pen, who is running in a runoff against uh, Emmanuel Macron, the sitting president of France in the second stage of the French presidential elections. Uh, Le Pen angered by protests over ties to Putin. You can read it for yourself at BBC.com. But basically, she's very upset that people continue to harp on her connections with Vladimir Putin, including sending out pictures of her and Vladimir Putin standing beside each other, arm in arm, looking very, very chummy. Uh, Miss Le Pen, this is very simple. 
if you don't want to be cons- if you don't want to be considered a right wing extremist with deep ties to Vladimir Putin, stop being a right wing extremist with deep ties to Vladimir Putin. Her political party actually has gotten money from has gotten money from Russian banks. The ties are deep. She has modified her public image in this particular campaign. She modified it a little bit last time out. She's really modified it this time, trying to turn down some of the real vitriol that she spits out about things like NATO, about things like a Europe that stands up against Vladimir Putin. She is a very questionable person with very questionable plans for the future for the French people which, by the way, as Americans, a country we leaned on heavily looking at some things that we wanted to do philosophic-wise when we put our country together, country that came to our aid and helped in the revolution, country that we returned the favor in World War II and defended them. These are friends of ours, and we shouldn't want unworthy schemers taking the reins of power in a country that's been an ally and a friend since the beginning of our country. It is our opinion, informed, humble, but accurate opinion, She would be an utter disaster for not only France, but Europe as a whole and the world as a thing. These ties to Putin are very troubling. The things she said about NATO are even more troubling. It's not that NATO is above reproach or there's not room for concern or that France can't make its own way in the world. That's not what we're getting at. We're saying there's untoward things here. Uh, She has some very bad ideas about social issues, specifically about certain people groups. You can do your own homework on all that. Long story short, nobody that loves freedom and liberty should want anything to do with Marie Le Pen. And too many people on the wider right or the global right, as they like to start calling it, seem to want to put her up as an example. She is not. We're not going to pretend she is. We're going to call it as a see it. Not that Macron's the best hot sauce ever to be existed as a leader, but we can see that Le Pen is going to have all kinds of problems for wider humanity and freedom-loving people, and that's why we can't support her. So, Miss Le Pen... If you don't want to be considered a Putin flunky, stop acting like one. Your actions speak louder than your words. More hurt tell right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, Her tell show, we always try to end on a happy note. Here's a great one. Uh, Erwin LeBeau is the true definition of a hero. This is uh, CBS News 12 out of Florida. He's a decorated World War II fighter pilot, an author, and philanthropist, and he's celebrating his 100th birthday this coming Sunday. His wish is to raise $100,000 for charity and get 100,000 birthday messages. I was hoping we could get 100,000 people each to send a dollar. We would easily raise our goal, Erwin said. So I think we're up to about 25,000. He went on with a laugh. The money Erwin raises goes to the fund he started more than 30 years ago to benefit Alpert Jewish Family Services in West Palm Beach. It's called Project HOPE, that's H-O-P-E, like an acronym, which stands for Help Our Poor and Elderly. He says he's enjoyed every minute working with the organization and being able to help their cause. The agency is out of the ordinary. It helps people of any kind of need, financial, emotional, it really doesn't matter. If somebody calls and they need help, the agency reacts. Since the creation of Project HOPE, Erwin, along with his wife of 79 years, Judy, God bless them, and their neighbors in the Hunter's Run community, I've raised over $400,000 for people in need. Mark Hoppen, the CEO of the foundation, says its money has helped thousands of people with services. 
they may not otherwise have been able to provide. Each year, there's a visit or two from Erwin and Judy where he hands out an envelope of checks, and I know it pleases him so much, and it pleases us so much that he does that for us. It's just one of the many accomplishments Erwin looks back on fondly as he gets ready to celebrate his next milestone. Originally from New York, Erwin was working in a defense plant. In a defense plant. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, he immediately enlisted in the Army Air Corps, became a fighter pilot, and was assigned to the 27th Fighter Group in Europe, flying 93 missions in a P-47 Thunderbolt. Uh, That's a lot of close air support, nasty, ugly fighting for a pilot. Good on him. LeBeau received five air medals and the Legion of Honor from the French government. They don't hand those out, folks, especially in World War II. This is a bona fide living legend hero we're dealing with here. Through it all, he kept a diary of his daily activities, and that diary is now in the Library of Congress. It is also the basis of his book, A Pilot Story, which was published on Amazon. You can visit Erwin's 100th birthday fundraising page on Facebook. It's linked in this piece at cbs12.com. In addition to donations, he's hoping for 100,000 birthday wishes. You can use the hashtag love for Lebo, L-E-B-O-W, on social media. It's already getting Erwin birthday love from all over the country, from St. Louis, Missouri to Arizona, Nebraska. I couldn't believe some of the return addresses I was seeing. What an absolute legend, a very full life, and may you enjoy these days as you cross your milestone, sir. God bless you, and we thank you for your service, and we thank you for a life well-lived as a great American. That'll do it for her tell. I love stories like that. It's much better than politics, ain't it? Need more people like him. Uh, And when he passes off the scene one of these days, who's going to take his place? We hope it's one of you who would like to join us and like to turn down the noise of the news cycle, like to get the information that matters, likes to discern the times and do some good out there and not just send cat pictures and yell at Congress with our social media. We try to actually do something good with it. Share this program. That's a good way to start. We're on all the podcasting platforms and the YouTube channel. YouTube channel is a great resource for you. We have playlists now on there. Uh, the Good Talks interview segments, the Twice on Sunday show, the Deep Dive podcast. We've got a couple of them we're working on right now. Really going to be good. Some important topics we're going to get really in-depth in. Things like partisanship, things like abuse, things like conservatorship. I'm really excited to get those out to you. All of that on the YouTube page. It's free to subscribe. It's easy to share. Also, if you're a big Facebook user, uh, Big Talker Network in your search block on uh, Facebook, search it, follow it, all the Big Talker Network content that we partner with them where they put it out on the radio for us. Uh, I also uh, jump on some of the other programming on there from time to time, but our program comes out every day, 7 a.m., repeat at 3 p.m., twice on Sundays on there too. You can follow on Facebook, and that's a great way to share the program. Send it out on Facebook. We'd sure appreciate it. So until, until we see you again on Monday to start a new week on Hertel, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Have a great weekend, folks. We'll see you for twice on Sunday on Sunday, and we'll be right back here Monday morning with more Herd Tell. Take care. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Oh.